Okay, good morning. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Well, let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come here today to worship you. And as we come now to listen to your word, please help us in our minds to think your thoughts and in our hearts to grasp your truths and in our lives to obey you and bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, uh, in 1909, the American author Mark Twain wrote his last story, and it was called Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. Okay, it's not, not a famous book, but apparently, it tells a story about a man who went to heaven, and he got to the pearly gates of heaven, and so uh, he told the angel, well, I'm from San Francisco, and the guy looked at him, uh, what? Uh, is that a planet? Oh, uh, okay, uh, actually, uh, California. And the guy says, never heard of it. Um, is that the name of the constellation that you come from? It's in the United States of America. Don't you know that? He's amazed. And, you know, uh, the angel has never heard of it. So he says, well, it's in the world. It's in the world, get it? The world? Which world? There are billions of worlds. And it goes on and on until finally somebody drags out the big map of the whole universe and finds that the earth is just a tiny speck on the corner of the map, which they call the what or something like that. Do you ever feel you know, dwarfed by the hugeness of our universe? Do you ever think, you know, what significance can human beings have in such a vast you know, space that we live in. Because David, who wrote Psalm 8, wanted exactly the same thing. And Psalm 8 is ultimately about the meaning and significance of human beings. So let's jump in straight away now and take a look at what Psalm 8 has to say to us. So I'll read to you now from verse 1 to 4. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. So David begins this psalm by praising God. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the word Lord in capital letters, the first word there, is actually in the original Hebrew language, the name Yahweh, which is God's name in the Old Testament. It means I am. But in the English Bible, it's actually put as the Lord in capital letters. David says, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And how does, how does the whole earth know God's majesty and fame? Well, it says, you have set your glory above the heavens. See, if you look at verse 3 also, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, see, all the greatness of the heavens, the, the brilliance of the sun, the beauty of the moon and the stars, All of these things 
point day after day and night after night to God's glory. God is the one who made all of it. It is the work of His fingers. And yet God's glory is not just seen in the heavens, it's above the heavens. You see, in those times they believed that there were uh, lots of layers or levels of heavens. And God was above all of that. God was in the highest heaven itself. That is where His glory is. But God's glory is not just in the heavens and above the heavens. God's glory is also seen in the most unlikely places. God's praise is found not just in the wonder of our vast universe, but also in the lips of children and infants, it says. See, God is satisfied not just with the big and the important and the great things showing His glory. He also wants the small things, the trivial things, the insignificant things to display His glory. So every part of creation from big to small must shout God's praise. And so when children and infants praise God, when they trust in God and they innocently pray to God, that is something that brings glory to God. Now, I have a friend in Australia who uh, teaches year one in school. And you know, in Australia, the schools, they have uh, what they call show and tell. I don't know whether they have it here. Which, uh, you know, they're supposed to come up to the front of the class and tell something about their, day, their week or something like that. And this little boy came up to the front and he said, you know, yesterday... Uh, my dad came home in a big rush and he closed the garage door very quickly and he told my mom, hurry dear, close everything, make sure nobody can see what I took home today in the car. I don't want the police to find out about it. And this guy just told the whole class like that. Because, you know, to him, it's just what happened. You see, the point is that children speak from their heart, right? Sometimes that is inconvenient or embarrassing for adults. But children just say what's on their mind. They don't censor it. And sometimes, you know, you can trust a child more than an adult because you can't buy them off. They, you know, it's harder to get them to fabricate the truth. So when young children praise God, when we hear our Sunday school children sing praises to God, they are speaking sincerely from their hearts and that brings great glory to God. And so when, when evil people speak evil about God, they oppose God, how does God silence them? Well, God silences them using the praise of children and infants. That's enough to shut them up. Because the innocent words of the vulnerable, the weak children can shut up those arrogant, those hostile people who speak against God. God's glory is above the heavens. Yet God's glory is also on the lips of children and infants. In all of creation, God's glory is seen. And that is an message of the first part of the psalm. Then in verses 3 to 4, there's a transition or a hinge to the second part of the psalm, which is now about human beings and the place of human beings in the universe. So in verse 3, I'll read it again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Now, I don't know about you, but in Singapore, I don't really see a lot of stars in the sky, especially around this time, the F1. It's just too bright in the sky, you can't see anything, right? But when I was living in Australia, when you go deep into the countryside and you just lie down on the grass and look at the sky, it's amazing. It's like sparkling jewels 
sort of embedded in a thick black velvet. It's, it's very beautiful. And when you lie there and you look at the stars, you know, you think, well, you know, the nearest star to us, apart from the sun, is uh, four light years away. If you're traveling at the speed of light, it takes four years to get there. And apparently the universe is 93 billion light years in, in diameter or something like that. You know, it takes 93 billion years if you're traveling at the speed of light from one end of the universe to the other end. And in fact, that's only the universe that we can see now because there are parts of the universe that we may not see because it's moving further away from us than the speed of light, apparently. And when you reflect on how big the universe is, don't you feel small? Now, our galaxy, our Earth is in a galaxy, right? It's called the Milky Way. And that's only one of 170 billion galaxies in the universe. And our Sun is only one of two to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And our planet Earth is only one of the smaller planets in the solar system. And mankind is only a tiny speck on the planet Earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him is just unbelievable. It's so amazing that God should pay any attention to us at all. After all, you think God would be more preoccupied with running his universe, with admiring the sheer variety and the splendor of the things that he has made. Now in another psalm, in Psalm 147, it says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Now, apparently there are 10 to the power 21 stars in the universe. Uh, that is ten. Uh, that is the number 1 with 21 zeros behind it. Okay, 1,000 billion billion stars. And God knows each of them by name. And yet, you know what? Human beings are more important to Him than all that. Verse 5 says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, all the, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In God's hierarchy, in God's scheme of things, human beings are just a bit lower than the angels who serve God in heaven. See, in Genesis, when God created the world in six days, at the end of every day, if you, if you remember that account, he, said, he looked back at the thing that he had made and he said that it was good. But after making mankind, God said it was very good. See, human beings are the peak of God's creation. We are the crowning glory of everything that He has made. And as far as created things are concerned, human beings are on the top of the pile, except for the angels. God has crowned human beings with glory and honor. Now, what does it mean by that? Well, to understand this a bit more, we need to go back to Genesis and take a look at what happened in Genesis. So if we Turn to Genesis 1. We can look at it on the screen. I'll read from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How did God crown human beings with glory and honor? Well, by making them in His own image. See, no other creature has that distinction or that privilege of imaging God, of being like God and of reflecting God's glory in that way. See, Psalm 8 does not specifically use the words image of God, but the idea is there. See, after all, what is Psalm 8? Psalm 8 is David meditating on the words of Genesis 1 about how God created mankind. So what does it mean to be uh, made in the image of God? Well, some people say that we are the image of God in a psychological sense. You know, we have awareness. We can think, we can feel, we can make decisions and that reflects God. So that is God's image in us. And some people say we are image of God in a moral sense. You know, unlike the animals, we are people who can do right and wrong. We can tell good from evil. So we are moral creatures. God expects us to be holy and righteous and fair and just like Him. And some people say, well, the image of God is in a functional sense. You see, God is the ruler of all His creation and when God tells us to rule over and subdue creation, we are like Him, we behave like Him. And some people say, we are God's image in a relational sense. See, God is a God of love, a God of relationship. God is a triune God, Father, Son and Spirit relating together in all eternity. And so God made us to be people who can love and who can relate to one another. So which is it? Well, theologians still talk about it and debate about it, but actually all of the above are true to some degree. You see, we reflect God in many different ways, whether it's psychological, moral, functional, relational. The point is that human beings are the image of God. We are like God. We are a reflection of Him. And, and that is why human beings are crowned with glory and honor in a unique way among all the created things. And because we are the image of God, God gave to us a, a special privilege and responsibility. God gave us dominion over all creation. See, our role is to rule over the other creatures, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's what Psalm 8 is talking about. In verse 6, You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea and all that swim the paths of the sea. See, human beings are special in God's sight because of who we are and because of what we are meant to do. We are God's image and we are meant to live this out in our lives by ruling and subduing the world for Him. Now, um, in Aust- I live in Australia and in Australia, who's the head of state? Well, it's the Queen of England actually. But you know, she doesn't live in Sydney and she doesn't live in Canberra. She lives in London, right? Or at least some of the time. And she has somebody in Australia to stand in for her. And that person, who is currently a she, 
is called the Governor General. Governor General is not the head of state, but she functions as the head of state. She, for all practical intents and purposes, is the head of state in Australia. Now God has appointed us to be His Governor's General. See, each one of us a little replica of God wherever we are. And just as God, the Creator, subdued the chaos of the universe when He first created the world, and He ruled over creation by His powerful word, and He rested on the seventh day, God wants us to be little creators who imitate Him in subduing the world, ruling it, in multiplying and filling the earth, and in resting from our work. Of course, we can't be the same kind of creator that God is, right? See, God creates things from nothing. We can't just snap our fingers. We can't say, let there be light and there's light. But we can create things from the raw materials that God has already put into the world. You see, we are not so much creators as recreators, right? We just re, uh, repackage the things that God has made. And every time we do something creative, we are reflecting, we are imaging the kind of God that He is. So some of you might be very creative in cooking or making things with your hands. Uh, others are very inventive in figuring out the, the, uh, the solution to IT problems, computer engineering problems. And some of you are maybe very good at art or music expression. And others are very good at using your bodies creatively in sports and uh, physical challenges. Now, all of these things image God. See, our creativity sets us apart from the animals. And we reflect God. And that is what God designed us for. But how, how does God expect us to rule over the world and subdue it? Well, it's when we work. Work is bringing order from chaos. Right? Just now I said that when God created the world, it was turning chaos into order. And our job is to imitate Him. So when we work, we are doing that. Now, see, when God created the world, His world was good and perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. But still, more work needed to be done. See, God commanded the first man, Adam, to rule over the world, name the animals, work the garden, and He commanded the first woman, Eve, to help the man. See, none of us here are farmers, right? As far as I can tell. So we don't have the responsibility of uh, turning a jungle into an orchard like Adam, maybe. And yet, we are all involved in shaping our world, reshaping our world into an orderly place for human beings to live in. So whether you are a full-time mother, a housewife, engineer, teacher, furniture removalist, accountant, lawyer, whatever, executive, see, we are all using our creative energies to subdue and rule over this world and to bring order to and maintain order in our world. Now we have the special privilege of being appointed as governors over God's world, but this is also a responsibility. See, we are not to rule the world as if it was ours to exploit for our short-term gain. God put everything under our feet, not for us to abuse it, but for us to bring order to it and care for it. See, the world doesn't belong to us, but to God. We are just ruling the world on behalf of God, under God. And so we mustn't rule as tyrants, but as his stewards. And that has implications for how we treat other people, how we treat even the animals and the environment. 
Now another part of imitating God is imitating God's rest. See, just as God rested on the seventh day, He also made us not to work seven days a week, but to work six days a week and rest on the seventh day. See, resting from our labor also is part of our job description as God's image bearers. And also, not only do we imitate God by being recreators, we also imitate God by being procreators. Procreating, having children, is also part of God's original command at creation, isn't it? When we have children, we actually imitate God because just as God made us in His image, our children are born in our image. Now, I'll say a bit about this later just in case you're starting to worry about what I'm saying. Okay? Now, the point here is that God created human beings in His image to have dominion, to subdue the world. That's what Psalm 8 is saying. And the psalm ends with praise to God again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because God's glory is seen in the heavens, but God's glory is also seen in human beings. Human beings that seem so insignificant, but yet they are so significant. Now there's a problem with all of this. Now there's a problem with what Psalm 8 is saying. The problem is that human beings don't seem to be ruling over the world as they should be. So, for example, with our work, work is more like a battlefield, isn't it, than a garden. It's, it's futile sometimes. It's, it's painful and tough and it can be even demeaning. And rather than ruling over the world for its good, we either have people who are ruling nothing, who have nothing, they are in massive poverty, or have people who are abusing and exploiting their position of power over people, over animals and the earth that God has made. So rather than having everything under our feet, we see that human beings are not in control. They're not in control. You know, at the end of the, uh, at the turn of the previous century, which was in the early 1900s, after years and years of huge scientific progress, technological advance in society, people thought, well, you know, the world is getting better. We are on track to becoming perfect, the perfect world. But only a few years after that, the world was plunged into the greatest war they had ever seen, the First World War, in which 15 million people died. And a few years after that, Second World War happened and 50 million people died. See, that is the state. Things are not in our control. And diseases that you know, we thought we can cure and conquer. What happens? Oh, a new virus comes out. HIV in the 1980s came out. Or SARS about less than 10 years ago came out. See, something has gone horribly wrong in this world. Something is wrong. The human race is not what God designed it to be. See, Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 are talking about the ideal state. The ideal state of man as it originally was. But the problem is we are no longer in the ideal state. We're no longer in the Garden of Eden because sin has come and messed up our world, messed up God's creation and spoiled humanity's relationship with the world. And in the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews saw this problem. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, or it's on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll read to you from verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where somebody has testified, What is man 
that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the argument goes like this. God said in Psalm 8 that he would put everything under uh, mankind's feet. In fact, even the future world, the world to come, he's going to subject it not to angels, but to human beings, as verse 5 says. But at present, we just don't see that. We don't see the world subject to him, him meaning man. But what do we see instead? Verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. We don't see everything subjected to man, but we see everything subjected to a man. See, Jesus is the one who fulfills some aid for us and ahead of us. See, he's the first human being to live out some aid. And because of this, we can all get there, provided that we are in him and with him. Now, Jesus fulfills some aid. Not because Psalm 8 is only about Jesus. Because we know that Psalm 8 is about human beings in general. But Jesus fulfills Psalm 8 because he is a man. In fact, he is the man. He is the ultimate man, the representative human being. Now, Adam, who was the first man, he could not live up to Psalm 8 because of his sin. But Jesus, the second Adam, the last man, did it. See, Adam did not manage to live out fully to being the image of God. But Jesus is the perfect image of God. See, as we can see in the other parts of the New Testament in the next slide, in Colossians, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So, whatever Psalm 8 says about mankind, is true also of Jesus. Man was made a little lower than the angels. Well, that happened to Jesus. Man was crowned with glory and honor. Well, that happened to Jesus too. When Jesus left heaven to come to earth as a man, he took on human flesh, became a man, and therefore humbled himself to become a little lower than the angels. And he also humbled himself in suffering and in dying shameful death on the cross. But now, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he obeyed the Father and he suffered death for everyone. And so Jesus is the perfect man, the one who fulfills the true destiny and vocation of human beings. Even though now we don't see human beings being crowned with glory and honor, we don't see everything subjected to us, we see Jesus. And that is enough. Because Jesus is the guarantee that Psalm 8 is true. And Psalm 8 will one day fully be realized for all of us who trust in Jesus. See, 
after the passage that I show you, just in the next verse, verse 10, in Hebrews chapter 2, it goes on to say that God will bring many sons to glory with Jesus at the head. And one day we will be in that great company of God's sons if we accept Jesus as our leader and trailblazer. So to sum it up, God made human beings of great worth and we are supposed to bring glory to God by being His image, ruling over the world, but we couldn't do it because of sin. Everything was spoiled by sin. But Jesus, the perfect man, fulfills God's original intention for human beings in His humiliation on earth and in His exaltation to heaven. And when He did that, He made it possible for all of us to get there as well, to be restored to the ideal if we are identified with Him. What does it mean in practice for all of us? Well, firstly, we must give glory to God, our Creator and our King. You see, Psalm 8 is not written for us primarily to analyze it and to study it, even though it contains very, very deep truths for such a short psalm. But Psalm 8, like all the other psalms, is written to be sung and to be prayed. It is a hymn, it is a, it's a psalm. We need to be people who can sing and pray to God, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let us praise our great God as, as we gather on Sundays or privately during the week, in our songs, in our prayers, in our reading and listening to His Word. And secondly, we need to thank God that we are made in His image to rule under Him. That's an amazing privilege. See, a mountain brings glory to God by looking majestic and rugged like a mountain is made to be. And a dog brings glory to God by being as doggy as possible because that brings glory to God. That's what God made it to be. But only human beings have the honor of bringing glory to God by being His image and ruling under Him. What a great privilege that is. That is our destiny as human beings. And thirdly, we must recognize the great worth and value of every human being. Now, if you believe, uh, you know, in random chance that people exist by just evolution alone, you'll conclude that only people who make a positive contribution in our world are valuable. See, there's a saying that society is judged by how it treats its weakest and most vulnerable members. And who are the weakest and most vulnerable in our society? Well, the elderly, the disabled, the dying. Some people say that there's no point wasting precious resources on looking after people who will never make a contribution to society. But the Christian says that every single person, both the young and the old, the able-bodied, the disabled, the healthy and the sick, every person bears God's image and is of God great worth in God's sight. And on the same token, if, if you look down on somebody because of their race, their skin colour, their social status, then you are belittling a person that God values. Every single person is of great worth to God. So whether it's a Singaporean or a Malaysian or a mainland Chinese or a Bangladeshi, Malay, Indian, whatever it is. See, God made all of us 
the same, equal in His image. It's so easy for us to feel that we can bully those who are beneath us in society and flatter those who are above us in society, right? That's how people work. But do you realize that your maid, the, pushing, the person who is pushing you in the train, you know, the person who is rude to you at the counter, or those people that work under you, they are all made by God to reflect His image. Do you treat them as human beings deserve to be treated? We must have a fundamental respect for people. Yes, we recognize they are sinners. But no matter who they are, we recognize who they really are in God's sight. And fourthly, while we are on earth, we must fulfill as best we can God's creation design in our work and our rest, in our marriages and our families. See, work is a good and a right and an honorable thing. It pleases God. Work did not start with sin. Work did not start with the fall. It's not a necessary evil. God created work for the Eden experience. So, our work today must not just be a job to pay off the bills. It mustn't be something that has nothing to do with God whatsoever. See, whatever work we do, we must do it to God and for God. Our work is part of our worship and service to God. And the same goes for, for resting from our work and the same goes for looking after our families. It's all part of God's creation command. And yet while we try and live out God's intention for creation on this earth, we also remember that, number five, we must wait for God to restore creation to its original intention. See, now we are stuck in an in-between kind of position. We are in a transition phase. So let me explain. We are are no longer in the ideal garden of Eden with the perfect creation in its original state. But we are still not yet in the restored creation of the new heavens and the new earth. See, God has already acted decisively in Jesus to restore and recreate the world and make it completely new. But it's not yet fully accomplished. It's not yet fully here. Now, during the Second World War in Europe, um, if you know a bit about the history of the World War, the turning point in that war came on D-Day. D-Day was the uh, 6th of June, 1944. See, the, the Western Allies had a huge landing on the beaches of Normandy in France. They poured one million men uh, and lots of uh, military equipment into the, the western corner of France. And at the same time, the Allies are pushing up from Africa into Italy and the Germans are facing the fight on the western front, the southern front and on the eastern front, the Russians were coming in, slowly moving their way towards Berlin. And surrounded on all sides, Germany faced certain defeat. The war was over, well, at least in one sense, the war was over and victory was certain for the Allies. But the war did not end there. See, the war dragged on for another year after many, many bloody battles were fought until Germany finally surrendered on the 8th of May 1945, which is called VE Day. Now, in the period between D-Day and VE Day, the war was already over in one sense. The outcome was certain. But, in another sense, the war was not yet over. See, victory was certain 
her victory was not complete. And that is the situation that we are living in today. See, Jesus has already won the victory for us over sin, over Satan and over death. But, it's not yet here now. See, God has already uh, done everything that is needed for the new heavens and the new earth, in which people are going to rule under Him forever, but that day has not arrived yet. So, currently, we just don't see everything subjected to humanity, and, but we do see Jesus exalted at God's right hand. We are in a temporary situation. So while we try and live out God's original uh, intention for creation, we also know that it won't be truly fulfilled until we get to the new creation. See, we try our best now to work, to rest, to live as God intended when He first made human beings, but all the time we know that it will be a disappointing experience. It's not as it should be, because of the sin in our world. And because we are in this in-between period, we shouldn't just be living as though everything will go on the same forever. No, we should be eagerly anticipating the future. See, this present creation, the Bible says, is groaning for the future restoration. And now, we also work for and look forward to Christ's return in order to make perfect God's creation. That means that all our priorities in our earthly life must change. See, in God started with the creation commission, but now the great commission of Jesus must take priority. See, it's more important now for us to fill the earth with believers than to fill the earth with children. Yes, work, marriage, children may still be the normal experience on earth for most of us, and it's a good and right thing that God made, but they are no longer the most important thing in life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about our attitude to marriage, but in fact his words can be applied to everything else in life. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This world is passing away, and soon it will be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. we already have one foot in heaven our other foot is still on earth so let us not fall in love with this world but let us live in light of heaven and all this leads us to my last point of application be restored by being united to Christ See, the only way to get to heaven is to be found in Jesus Christ See, by ourselves we can never fulfill God's destiny for mankind. Jesus is the man who did it for us. And if we believe in Him, then we are joined to Him. Then we are found in Him. He becomes our representative. And when we are united to Christ, God remakes us 
in the image of Christ. So let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, when we become conformed to the likeness of Christ, then we become who we are truly meant to be because we are truly meant to be the image of God. And only then will we be fully restored from sin to become God's perfect image bearers forever. Now, when I was a boy, I was, wasn't legally allowed to travel overseas by myself. You see, I had no passport. See, my photo was stuck in a page in my mother's passport, which meant that if I wanted to go overseas, I had to be accompanied by my mother. I had to piggyback on her passport. Now, we can't go to heaven on our own. See, the only way that we can get to heaven is to piggyback on Jesus. He's the only way for us to fulfill our destiny as people who reflect God's glory forever. So, Hang on to Jesus. Don't let go. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the Avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands you put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, indeed we praise and thank you for making us special in all your creation. Please forgive us our sin, which messed up your original good purposes for us. Because of our sin, we do not see everything yet in subject to subjection to humanity. But we do see Jesus made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation and death and crowned with glory and honor in his resurrection and exaltation. May we be found in Jesus. Make us in his likeness with every passing day and keep us faithful to Him until the day when You bring us to glory so that we may bring glory back to You by being Your unspoiled image and by ruling with Christ Jesus in Your eternal kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.